0: The technology of today is already helping us penetrate the silent darkness of space. Man himself has taken the first tiny step into this vast unknown.
1: I'm Chris Stemp, the coffee drinker.
2: I'm Donnie Stemp, the tea drinker. It's the week of October 24th, 2022. The atmospheric carbon number is 416.1 parts per million.
1: Welcome to the Week on Earth.
2: How's your week? How's your weekend?
1: I mean, I think when we got on here and I said, don't ask, and I look like this, I think that is the equivalent. <laughs> I think that answers your question.
2: That's what you didn't want me to ask is, how are you?
1: That is precisely the question I don't want to answer. I just can't figure it out. At what age did we go from let's have fun to your sole purpose of being here is giving things away? Time. Time energy, attention, body, money, focus, like everything just here, other people, you can
2: have it. Oh, I'm sure you can get in a little fun. Weren't you just taking
1: care of bees? That wasn't fun. That, that, that's my point is it's gotten to (laughs) the point where if you add so many things in, eventually they all feel like work. That's where I'm at. Mm.
2: All right. Well, sounds like you need a little vacation.
1: I'm counting down the days to Thanksgiving.
2: Yeah. Halloween, no no days off there, but it is my favorite time of the year.
1: You know, it would be. That's going to be our next one. <laughs> Hi, I'm Donnie, the only human who really, really likes Halloween as their favorite holiday.
2: A L- lot of people do. And they're all weird. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> my weekend's pretty good. Thanks for asking.
1: I didn't ask. This is my point. Didn't ask. Don't want to know about how calm and relaxing your life is. Just don't.
2: I wouldn't say I'm. I'm actually a little hungover. Oh, had the uh, dad's poker tournament last night fundraiser for school. I lost pretty early on, but they had good beer. Mm. I had the the flop was uh, king seven seven, and this guy who was going in on every pot like raised it
1: had king th- seven.
2: I had ace king. He he went in a thousand. I went all in. My total was like three thousand. Like, I I got, you know, I got the higher kicker. He had the seven. He had, he had trip sevens. Yeah.
1: And just for listeners, this is not real thousands. This is Oh no,
2: this is fundraiser money. I actually won. I won uh, something, but just from the raffle, I won
1: a Dodgers pillow. Oh, good for you.
2: So, oh, and then, you know, uh, yesterday I did the um, letter writing.
1: So I was wondering if we were going to bring that up. Like if anybody listening to this show wonders if you actually believe in this stuff. Is there any other human that writes letters to voters in the midterms? Like, that, I didn't even know that was a thing. You're such a, a hippie thing. Californian.
2: It is. I, I think a lot of people do it. But I do have to say, in L.A., what it means is you go to a cool warehouse. They have uh, cocktails, free cocktails, mezcal, tequila. Wow free ice cream sandwiches and all kinds of food. Um, and celebrities, Kira Sedgwick was there.
1: Color me impressed. It was fun. I mean, I still wouldn't go, but speaking of which, you know, like two of the weirdest people I know are you and Rojas. I happen to do podcasts with both of them. And he also, Does voting stuff like he calls people? He's one of those annoying people that calls and is like, "Hey, you plan on voting?" And no one likes you. Well, good for him. I mean, you're good people. You're good. Those
2: are not easy things to do. The letter writing's pretty easy, but of course, midterms just around the corner. Got to do what we can. Yes, sir.
1: What do we got for climate? What do we got this week on Earth?
2: This week on Earth, we're digging in again. To carbon and carbon dioxide, um, obviously the biggest greenhouse gas. One that we went into in an earlier episode, we we got pretty far, but I, I still don't think we fundamentally understand. Like, if there was a test on carbon, would we
1: pass? Unlikely, and that's fair. It's a good reason to have another episode. I agree.
2: I mean, by breathing out, are we contributing to climate change? What Touché. do
1: you think? Um, no
2: well lucky guess
1: <laughs> it is a lucky guess I have no idea why
2: so we actually have for this juvenile discussion we dragged in a uh, world-renowned NASA JPL space scientist to answer our dumb carbon questions and we'll get to that big idea in just a few minutes but first it's time it's
1: time for the news of the week on earth
2: Another week, another food thrown at a famous work of art. Sunday, members of a German environmental group threw mashed potatoes over a Monet painting in Europe at the Museum Barberini. From The Guardian, the protesters were quoted as saying, People are starving, people are freezing, people are dying. We are in a climate catastrophe and all you are afraid of is tomato soup or mashed potatoes on a painting. Now, this comes nine days after protesters caused a global stir when they threw tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. And I know it's a global stir because even you that's true. read this story and brought it up.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing what social media can do. Like, that's the only reason I knew of that. The only reason I would know of any of this.
2: Yeah, it caused a huge splash, pardon the pun. And it's still in the news nine days later. So I wanted to ask you, your opinion when you first heard that story, it, it caused a lot of division. What do you think?
1: I mean, look, these people are going to go to jail or something. So going after what you believe in, who am I to judge, right? It's just not my cup of soup, if you will.
2: Well, I think initially it was, this is not the way we should be um, getting attention for the climate. But then I think it quickly turned into, you know what, this was actually a pretty good way to get a lot of attention and a lot of people talking and of course there was glass over the paintings so they weren't fully damaged and right yeah i right. immediately thought it's like a window into the way people think they think like oh my gosh this you know renowned priceless work of art on one hand on the other hand the planet
1: hmm you know In other news, CBS reports that Seattle had the world's worst air pollution this week as wildfires burn across Washington. IQ Air ranked the air quality worse than other major polluting cities like Beijing and Delhi. Most of the smoke in Seattle is from the Bolt Creek Fire, which has burned 15,000 acres since September 10th and is 43% contained.
2: Yeah, these are terrible, and of course, when you've been through these, I have some PTSD just thinking of them. It's a little hard to have empathy, you know, but when you've been through it, it's like it, it's choking, you know, it, it's really unfortunate. Yeah.
1: I actually think fires are one of the things that are easier to have empathy for. I, I can't imagine it. Like when smells waft anywhere, it's annoying. And to be just covered in smoke in your home would be, uh, maddening. Yeah. Yep. So I'm
2: thinking of our, our friends in Seattle, my brother-in-law's there, Hopefully, they're getting a chance to breathe easier these days. Finally, the International Energy Agency is out with new numbers on the total global CO2 emissions from fossil fuels this year. Chris, how do you think we did? Are the numbers up? Are are, are they down? What do you think? Take a guess.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with they're improving. That's what I'm going to say.
2: Hmm. That's That's a politician's answer.
1: I'm working on it.
2: But actually... That is the good. They are improving. Global CO2 from fossil fuels is projected to rise just under 1% this year, which is well under last year's 6% growth, according to the new estimate. A statement from the IEA head, Faith Burol, says CO2 emissions are growing far less quickly this year than some people feared. The rise in global CO2 emissions this year would be much larger more than tripling to close to 1 billion tons, were it not for the major deployments of renewable energy technologies and electric vehicles around the world.
0: What's the idea? Hey, what's the big idea anyway? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the idea? idea? I wonder what's the big idea.
2: All right, let's get into the big idea. It's time for our carbon test. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. We're not having a test. The question is, do we, me and you, Chris, do we have a good grasp yet on carbon and CO2? Could we pass the test? We did that early episode. We covered a lot of ground, but we still have some basic questions. So, Chris, we've enlisted a top NASA JPL space carbon expert to finally answer all our dumb questions about what exactly is carbon and carbon dioxide how it works, how to measure it, and can we understand it enough to solve climate change.
0: My name is Abhishek Chadidji. I'm at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I'm currently the project scientist for NASA's Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3 mission, NASA's premier mission, pioneering, I would say, for measuring atmospheric carbon dioxide from space.
2: Wow. Honestly, I haven't even heard of that mission, but it sounds kind of awesome.
1: It is. (laughs) And of course, we'll get into this orbiting carbon three mission that's out there in space watching over us and our carbon emissions. But first, our regular listeners will remember we've already done an episode on carbon. My question is, why do another one? And I'm starting to think you're just losing your creativity.
2: (laughs) Maybe that's it. But I really wanted to answer that question of when we breathe out, are we increasing carbon dioxide? And we'll see if he answers that. Dr. Abhishek Chatterjee.
0: First of all, I think uh, I was actually listening to some of the podcasts earlier or some of the episodes earlier. And uh, this is, it's kind of really fascinating. I'm really glad to be part of this. So thank you again for inviting me here.
1: So Dr. Chatterjee was kind enough to listen to that episode and help us fill in the holes. And I really like the clarity with which he explained it. So are you ready to go back to school? Get out your number two pencils. This will be graded by humans in the future who are hopefully smarter than us.
0: So to begin with, I think in one of the previous episodes uh, that you had where you talked a little bit about carbon. So we talked a little bit about carbon being the chemical backbone of all life on Earth, right? I mean, it's an element that is found in everything that we do and everything that we are comprised of it forms key molecules like protein dna uh, it makes our life possible really and that element in our atmosphere is essentially found in the form of carbon dioxide or co2 now all of the carbon that we currently have on earth is the same amount that we always uh, that we always have had most of the carbon has been stored in rocks, sediments. Uh, the rest of it is stored in the ocean, atmosphere, living organisms, and these are what we call as the reservoirs or sinks through which carbon is cycling in its different form. Now, over millions of years, dead organisms become fossil fuels. But when, as from the from our human perspective, when we burn this fuels for energy. Vast amounts of carbon dioxide are being released back in the atmosphere and this is the excess carbon dioxide that is changing our climate, increasing global temperature, causing ocean acidification, again something that was mentioned in the previous episode, and impacting all of the planet's ecosystems.
2: I mean, do you remember any of this from elementary school? Like, I know we we know that fossil fuels are made from dinosaur bones, right?
1: Yes, but it's not all fossil fuels are made from dinosaur bones, right?
2: Right. Well, he just said they're made it's made from dead organic material. So,
1: correct. Yes, I do, I do remember that part.
2: Yeah, and the idea that the amount of carbon on the planet does not change, it's either stored deep underground or in these bones or dead organic material or we burn it all at once and it rushes into the atmosphere Mm. so now of course we need to understand measure and remove this excess co2 if we want a livable planet and this is where the orbiting carbon observatory 3 comes in
0: so one of the primary one of our primary goals is to understand how much of that co2 is building up in the atmosphere for the longest time what we had was a set of ground monitoring stations and that's where we were first starting to take measurements and saw the rise of atmospheric co2 now sometime in the mid 2000s we realized that there may be an opportunity to actually measure this atmospheric co2 from space and This is sort of fascinating and sort of brings a big improvement because of the fact that the ground monitoring stations, they are kind of pretty sparse and they are spread across the globe, but doesn't necessarily cover all all countries and all space and time. But if you have a remote sensing satellite that can just go around the earth and continuously take measurements, then that helps us fill all of those gaps in the data. So NASA launched the first Orbiting Carbon Observatory 2 satellite. It launched in 2014. And essentially, it basically takes measurements of what the atmospheric CO2 is throughout the entire, like over the entire planet. We take over 100,000 measurements every day. And in 2019, we launched what we call as a sister instrument for the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3 that actually went up on the International Space Station. And OCO3 is similarly taking, again, a several uh, carbon dioxide measurements that complements the data that we already have from OCO2.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about what you found then as far as measurements of atmospheric CO2 and how much we're improving or, or getting worse?
0: We are certainly getting worse. <laughs> right. So in general, if we take out, for, for a moment, we forget about releasing carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels or from land use change and deforestation. Then in general, the carbon cycle itself is in balance. So one of the things that you pointed out about like us breathing or excelling carbon, sure, we actually do exhale carbon dioxide. But again, the amount of carbon dioxide that we have excelled in some way that carbon was already sequestered through plants and soils, which then went into the food and, then, and, and that's the food that we consumed and then we have released that CO2. So in a perfect world or in an ideal scenario, that carbon cycle is completely balanced. The addition that we have been doing since the beginning of the industrial revolution Uh, since like the mid-1800s, that has to primarily do with the extra carbon dioxide that we have been releasing from burning fossil fuels, as well as from other activities, for example, like land use change and deforestation being another key component.
2: That brings me to my next question, one we've debated on this show as well. And that question is, is atmospheric carbon the best way to think about and measure our carbon emissions? So the goal should be that we need to get to 350 parts per million instead of saying we need to remove 10 billion tons of CO2, right? Because even if we remove 10 billion tons, if we also cut down all our forests and our other carbon sinks disappear, we would then still have a bigger greenhouse gas problem. Is that correct?
0: Yes, that is correct. The atmosphere is an integrator of all of the changes that are happening in the different reservoirs or sinks. And it's basically giving us sort of this almost like a top-down or a bird's-eye view of everything that is going on on the planet. And so by measuring the atmospheric CO2 concentrations and tracking that change, we are essentially getting us, we are essentially able to watch like the Earth breathing.
2: Okay. So what is the orbiting carbon satellite finding? Are you getting results yet? Are you sharing those?
0: Yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned, the OCO2 satellite, that has been operational since 2014. And since that time, the data that we have collected, as I said, we take over 100,000 measurements every day. Now, not all of those measurements are useful because a lot of the time we have cloud cover and so we are not able to see from space to the clouds. So occasionally we will we do have data gaps. But regardless the tons and tons of measurements that we have, we are, one we are certainly able to see the rise in atmospheric CO2. Uh, I mean since OCO2 launched we have seen almost like over a 10 ppm rise that has happened in the global atmospheric CO2 concentrations. But then we are also able to track other changes that are happening in the natural carbon cycle, as well as the human component of the carbon cycle. So let me just give two examples here. For example, when we have events such as hurricanes or floods, or when you have a big drought event, that has an impact on the trees and the soils and the ecosystem. There are emissions that happen during that period. We are able to observe that as well as forest fires. I mean, that certainly additional fires or increasing wildfires that have been going around the globe. When those fires happen, there are increasing CO2 emissions and we are able to, again, observe that from our, the satellite missions that we have. Now this would be, this is what I would call like tracking changes that are happening in the natural carbon cycle. But then there are changes that are happening on the human component as well. So particularly looking at emissions that are happening over urban areas and megacities, as well as emissions that are happening from power plants. With OCO3, we are particularly able to monitor and map those emissions that are happening across these areas. And the reason that is possible is because OCO3 going up later, we were able to put in a new pointing mirror capability, a specific technological advancement, I would say, that we were able to put on OCO3. And that really allows us to zoom in on an area which is, say, like 80 kilometer by 80 kilometer and really get dense localized measurements of CO2 concentrations over that region between OCO2 and OCO3, we now have a really wonderful view of all the changes that are happening across both the natural and the human component of the carbon cycle.
2: Right. Yeah, it sounds like we've got the next level of integrated data to really understand everything that's happening with the carbon cycle in the atmosphere. Indeed. Mm -hmm. How useful is that data in making our decisions on how to solve climate change? And is that data being used already?
0: Indeed. So th- certainly that data is being used. I mean, this sort of gets back to one of like the fundamental principles that I always talk about, which is that we can only manage what we can measure. Mm. And so by having accurate data of what the atmospheric CO2 concentrations look like, what the emissions are that are causing those concentrations we are then able we have the tools to monitor our atmosphere very carefully and this then provides information to the policy makers the best information that's available in order to make any kind of policy relevant decisions from our perspective we are collecting that data and then this is actually released publicly and available publicly but then we are working with different agencies and different groups like the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, but also just like looking forward, I mean, thinking more in the future where there is a lot of interest in understanding different type of carbon removal technologies or CDR as they are called. And again, I think that was one of the topics of discussion in your pre- one of your previous episodes if we are investing in a carbon reduction strategy, uh, such as like converting from coal to natural gas or transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables, then we would like to know that it worked, right? Yeah, and the, yeah. again, the way that we know that it worked would be based on how much concentrations, uh, what the atmospheric concentrations are and how they are being reduced as we implement those different technologies.
2: Yeah, that would to know that these things work would be, a huge boost to the technology and to our use of them. Exactly. Uh, that brings me to a, a just a question I've been thinking of is, how do you see the CO2 from space?
0: That's a great question. <laughs> um, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, so the principle, the best way to think about it is, gas molecules that are there in the Earth's atmosphere. So CO2 is essentially a gas molecule that's floating around in the Earth's atmosphere, right? The gas molecules that are there in the Earth's atmosphere, they absorb the sunlight at specific wavelengths. And then when light passes through the Earth's atmosphere, the gases that are present, they leave what we call a fingerprint. OCO2 and OCO3, they essentially work like cameras. And so they are able to detect, we are able to detect those molecular fingerprints. And then from there, we are able to back out what the absorption level is. And that tells us how many molecules of CO2 are in the region through which that light passed. And that is sort of like a very fundamental principle uh, that we use in tracking or measuring how much CO2 molecules are there in the atmosphere.
2: That actually, I that makes sense. I was going to say you can get as scientific as you want, but it's actually a, a very visual explanation. I'm sure it's not simple, but it's understandable.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, there are certainly lots of challenges that come uh, because it's not as straightforward as just like looking down and right. taking the image of the Earth. Because, as I mentioned, for example, we have clouds. <laughs> clouds are both our best friends as Well, this causes a lot of challenges. We've
2: been following the numbers from the Mauna Loa Observatory. Mm -hmm. Do your numbers generally track with them? I I can understand that you're getting more comprehensive numbers, but are you using the same, is it the same system? Are you say you're measuring 416 parts per million right now?
0: Uh, Yes. I mean, in general, we actually do work very closely with our colleagues at NOAA. we typically, the numbers that we get in general, they track what we are getting from Mauna Loa or from the end, all of the different ground monitoring stations that NOAA have. We do track those numbers very well. The NOAA measurements, because they are happening closer to the ground, they are actually able to, they are more influenced by the changes that are happening close to the surface. And so they are a much better reflection of, changes that are happening locally. Whereas from the space-based missions, what we are getting is what we call as the CO2 molecules in the entire column of the atmosphere. Because it's a measure of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it provides a little bit more integrated information about the changes that are happening across the entire planet, not just at one particular location. Really, it's Sort of that integrated system that is right now giving us a great understanding of how our planet is changing.
2: So it just seems to me that having all of this really reliable local data is the game changer in measuring carbon emissions, right? Companies are buying uh, carbon offsets, but we don't know if they're working. Companies and countries are saying this is what they're going to do, but we have no way to verify. Well, now we have spies in space that can tell us if they're living up to
1: their promises. I think it's amazing simply because most people's argument around climate change revolves around the idea of, we just don't know, or it's not a precise science, or can we measure it, or do we have a measuring stick? And Mm. this kind of puts that to rest if you want to use your brain
0: at
2: all. Does all of this new, very detailed data, does it give you optimism in terms of the climate battle?
0: Yes, indeed. Um, just being able to track these changes, understand the causes and sort of how the atmosphere is changing. One of the things that we certainly have realized that the atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere is resilient to many of the changes that humans have imposed on it. And this resilience of the Earth's atmosphere that has been proved through our planet's climate history, even with all of the changes that are happening, the fact that we are able to now monitor them with such accuracy and precision, I'm certainly hopeful and optimistic that these data and this information can then be turned into valuable action and valuable uh, policy or any kind of decision-making. Now, one of the questions that we always have is that, how much emissions do we need to reduce uh, in order to reach net zero, for example, by 2050 or by some other year? And it is with the help of this data that we have been obtaining, that we have been collecting, Starting all the way back to like the Monoloa data, starting from 1960s, and all of the data we have now, this is what helps us get at the specific numbers. For example, I would say that we need—we know that we need to cut around 1.4 billion tons each year if we are to reach net zero by 2050. Or uh, one other way of thinking about that would be: if we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C, then we need to remove say 10 billion tons each year from the atmosphere.
2: Yeah, and that's very useful to translate the numbers because that's another frustration we've had here is from some quarters we hear about how to get from, you know, the 1.5 number or 2.5, and, but they don't necessarily track. We, we remember when 350 was the optimal carbon number, the numbers are, they're in different systems. How do we tie all that together?
0: Yeah, in terms of the units, I, I I do agree. You when we talk about carbon or carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases, we have a plethora of units. <laughs> right. Um, so atmospheric CO two, we typically talk about parts per million. Like we have been talking about ppm for hundred fifteen, for ppm, which sort of like makes sense in terms of how we think by volume, the Earth's atmosphere is. Mm. Then on the other hand, when we talk about CO2 emissions, we typically tend to talk in terms of gigaton carbon. And so one gigaton carbon is around 1 billion tons of CO2. And one of the things that I, like when I was starting my research career and my graduate career, I remember initially really struggling trying to understand what is one ton of CO2? How do we understand Mm. it? Um, And the way I always think about one ton of CO2 is if you can imagine a cube that's 27 feet tall, 27 feet wide, and 27 long. Um, And so 27 feet is roughly like, let's say maybe the length of like a telephone pole, maybe almost like an electric pole. Mm. So that cube... Uh, 27 feet in all dimensions, that is basically would be able to hold a metric ton or a ton of CO2. And when when we are talking about 1 billion tons of CO2, we are basically talking about 1 billion of these cubes. Now that if, we must remove each year. Well, we have to remove, uh, if we are to re- reach that 1.5 degrees C by 2050, then I believe the latest estimates are that we have to remove around 10 billion tons per year. So 10 billion of those cubes. <laughs> um, okay. And right now, annually, we are generating around more than 35 billion tons of CO2. So basically we have 35 billion of those cubes that are getting stacked up every year. So yes, it's a it's incredibly a big challenge, but something which again just Knowing where we were and where we have come, all the advancements and technological advancements that we have made, and how well we are able to now track and monitor atmospheric CO2, I'm sure that we'll be able to overcome in future years.
2: Well, that's excellent. Thank you so much for that description. Of course, these are things that the average person should know something about. Luckily, there are scientists like yourself who understand the details. I think we're we're looking for that common ground where we all can understand enough to know what we have to do and what we have to push our representatives to do mm-hmm. to get where we need to go.
0: Yeah. And I mean there are now a whole suite of tools that are becoming available which I think is sort of really helps translate some of these more scientific terms and units into things that we can understand. Uh, and so a couple of them that I would like to mention, uh, hopefully if we have time for the benefit of the yeah, please. listener, would be uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. They have a couple of these calculators that I absolutely love. Uh, so, for example, they have a what they call as a household carbon footprint calculator, and then another one called greenhouse gas equivalencies calculator. And that greenhouse gas equivalency calculator is something that I occasionally I'm very intrigued, and I go and plug in uh, some numbers about, let's say, how many gallons of fuel I've put into my car, and it then helps translate that into how much CO2 emissions are would be happening, and what how much CO2 emissions uh, how much CO2 emissions could be reduced if what type of actions I need to take, how that number converts to how many uh, trees I need to plant in order to uh, mitigate that or reduce that emissions. So there are like a large number of those tools that are becoming available, which hopefully makes it easier for everyone to kind of go and understand the implications of all of the activities that we do how that results in emitting CO2, how that's contributing towards increase and what type of actions we can take at a personal level to be able to reduce the emissions.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it is really helpful for all of us as individuals to understand on our own small level, our own existence, how much we're burning, how much we can save. The more we can understand these units of measurement, the more we have a sense of what we need to do as a society.
0: Exactly. Yes.
2: Okay. Well, that was that was very helpful and uh, very illustrative. And so, Dr. Chatterjee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so
0: much, Donny. This was a pleasure. Uh, this was absolutely a fun discussion. And I'm always happy to talk more and more about carbon cycle science, CO2, and what we can do to help the planet.
2: So, Chris, one big takeaway for me is that every year we need to remove 10 billion house-size cubes of carbon out of the atmosphere. On one hand, that seems like an overwhelming number. On the other hand, at least we can visualize the actual scale of the problem.
1: Yeah. I think there's two ways to look at it, right? One is the scale and how terrifying that is. But the other is you can't solve a problem you can't see. So now we can finally see it. We can put numbers on it. We can determine the progress we're making. And again, I really think that's what people are looking for. You know, If I do the work, if we all do the work, will we notice it? What is the goal. If you go back to our discussion with Mark McKinnon earlier, and you talk about storytelling, do we have a bad guy? And can we see it? And we kind of do. It's carbon right now, and we know how to beat it.
2: Good. And we could now maybe pass that carbon test, that pop quiz that's coming up in our midterms.
1: So with that, we conclude this episode. Listen, if you like what you hear, Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, tell a friend, and shoot us an email at weekonearth at gmail.com.
2: The Week on Earth is produced by Elise Louie with music by Amy Eileen Wood. Very special thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Abhishek Chatterjee from JPL NASA. I kept calling him a space scientist. I don't think that's his actual title. I just think it's
1: cool. What do you want to be when you go up? A space scientist. That'll do it. We'll see you next week right here on Earth.